Um, I want to welcome everyone to today or tonight, depending on your time zone, Meet the Scholars session. Um, I'm Hao Huang, I'm a professor of management at a tech business school. I'm also on STR executive committee member, along with other participants um, tonight who have been involved in providing some of what I hope will be a really interesting con uh, conversation. And tonight, sorry, I'm, it's 9 p.m. here, so I'm going to say tonight. Um, uh, we're, we have a distinguished scholar, Joanne Oxley, um, and Joanne is McCutcheon Professor in International Business and Professor of Strategic Management at the Rotman School. Um, I and um, Shelby Guy, who is a uh, great help, um, want to just give you a brief background to Joanne before we turn it over to her. Um, some career highlights. Now, I just want to make sure that the career highlights um, emphasize uh, uh, your achievements to date, because obviously you're still going strong. Um, first of all, uh, Joanne got her PhD at UC Berkeley in 1990 uh, and graduated in 1995. Her dissertation advisor was the late Oliver Williamson. You know, uh, I think you'll probably have a few words to say about his contribution and your experience with him. Um, you, after graduating uh, with your PhD, you joined uh, the Ross School of Business uh, as an assistant professor. And in 2004, you went to the Rotman School where you are to present and actually now some vice dean or a member of the administration. So obviously rose through the ranks. Um, your list of publications is very long, top, top tier journals, of course. Um, but I just want to highlight two articles that I think have had a great deal of impact. Um, the first one is with David Maury and Brian Silverman, which was published in 1995, Strategic Alliances and Interfirm Knowledge Transfer which has over 4,500 Google citations and was very recently the winner of the SMJ Best Paper Prize. So that I think really reflects the impact that that, that article has had. Um, and I also really would like to hear a little bit more also about the work that you did at, at, during your PhD, which I believe um, produced the second article, which is also highly cited, uh, sole authored, I should mention, Appropriability Hazards and Governance in Strategic Alliances, a Transaction Cost. Now, in addition to these publications, I also want to highlight that you have had a number of really uh, uh, productive collaborations with then doctoral students for young scholars, including Rochelle Sampson, Fabrice Lumino, Elena Colchina, and Juan Alcacer. So I think that speaks to, uh, well, maybe we can talk about your collaborative strategy um, later on. And finally, given the health and economic crisis that we're finding ourselves in, I should also mention that you're the special co special issue co-editor um, and strategy sciences um, journal uh, on international strategy in an era of global flux. So I know that there are probably some international business scholars listening today. And I think that if you can reflect on some of the takeaways from your own research in international business and, 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 and what's emerged from the special issue, that would be wonderful as well. Now, the final detail that I just wanted to add about um, Joanne, I, I believe that's where I got cut off, um, is that you're married to a professional juggler with two uh, wonderful children. So that's it for the career highlights. Um, given that you dropped out of school to become an engineering apprentice, I think that's a, a good opportunity to turn it over to you. 
uh, Joanne to share a little bit about how you got into academia. And, um, and of course, your experiences at Berkeley working with Oliver Williamson uh, and uh, also with your co-authors that I mentioned earlier, David Maury and, and Brian Silverman, to start. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you, Ha. And first of all, I should just say uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I said to somebody, I feel like I'm going on like, uh, this is your life or something, you know. <laughs> It's uh, it's fun to um, to have a chance to chat, and it's also fun to see faces and names that um, that I. It's it's just really nice to see everybody, and I appreciate your, the intro. We actually cut. I think we all lost you actually before you got onto the fun facts. So maybe I should say that the the first one was um, I did indeed leave high school when I was fifteen, um, and I went to be an engineering apprentice, which is not your typical route probably into academia. Um, it was, I grew up in Northern England, as, as uh, you may know, and um, uh, I was not a great fan of high school. Academically, it was, it was fine and dandy. Socially, not my favorite place. So when, uh, by kind of a, a strange, um, convoluted set of events, somebody suggested that maybe I should go and talk to an engineering firm, I was just taking my O-levels at that time, so the exams that you take at kind of 15, 16, um, somebody said, I didn't know what I wanted to pursue. Uh, I liked science. I didn't want to work in a lab. I wasn't sure what A-levels to take. And actually it was my dad said, why don't you go and have a couple of informational interviews with engineering firms and, and you know, see if that's a career that kind of appeals to you, not thinking at all that it would prompt me to immediately leave school, become this engineering apprentice, um, I was actually the first female apprentice at a tractor company, tractor manufacturing company. So it was me and 25, 16-year-old boys uh, doing this kind of technical apprenticeship. So um, I was on the shop floor. I was doing all of the things that you can imagine goes into tractor manufacturing. And then I was going to school at night and I, I have a, an ordinary national certificate in engineering, which is kind of the equivalent of an A-level in engineering, kind of. Um, and uh, I took A-level maths on the side, and then the company actually sponsored me to go to, and that's how I wound up at Trent Polytechnic, which is not, it's not Oxford, let's just say that, it's not Oxford, but it, it was serendipitously, um, I, I happened upon a, into a really, this has kind of been the story of my life, this is like completely unplanned, serendipitously, I find myself in these kind of fantastic situations and this was one of them because I turned up at Trent Polytechnic and it just happened that they were starting a new program uh, a double honors degree in engineering and business studies as it was called then there were only 15 of us in this program me and 14 guys you know this is another story um, and so we had you know like just we were just together this kind of cohort of 15 students through five years of engineering and business studies uh, education and it was a co-op degree so i would go back to the tractor company uh, along the way and i had what i think i couldn't have asked for a better undergrad uh ed educational experience and you know my uh my experience as a as an engineering apprentice was also you know like transformative uh it was it had highs it had lows but 
but uh, just that combination of kind of practical experience uh, at the same time as combining it with academia um, was 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 fantastic. So uh, so I had, uh, as I say, I feel like I had a really great kind of undergrad experience. Um, following from that, so when I graduated from Trent Poly, um, I wanted to stay in Nottingham, which is where it was. I did not want to go back to the tractor manufacturers. Um, so I actually went and I got a job at Raleigh Bicycle Company that was in Nottingham. And I was actually a production engineer or manufacturing engineer, as they're called now. And it turned out while I loved being a trainee engineer, I loved studying engineering uh, uh, as, a, as a discipline. Turned out I really didn't like working as an engineer. And so after a couple of years, I was wondering, what the heck am I going to do now? I've been an engineer since I was, you know, like 16. Now I'm kind of figuring out I don't want to do this. What am I going to do now? And I just happened to see another serendipity thing. I was walking down the corridor one day, saw this poster advertising a traveling scholarship, a Nottingham Memorial, no, Nottingham Roosevelt Memorial Traveling Scholarship. Um, and it basically was something where they would give you money, send you off to the States for four months to pursue some interest related to your work and no other obligations. So I applied, I got one, I went off to the States. Um, uh, this, this is a long convoluted story, but it's kind of a long convoluted story how I got into academia. I traveled around the States, I met my husband there, decided that, you know what, I want to change careers anyway, so why don't I just move to the States? Uh, I moved to the States, then it's like, now what do I do? It's like, well, um, we were living in Berkeley, maybe I will do my MBA because, you know, if I'm going to change countries and change careers, how do I do that? I'll go to grad school. Uh, applied to Berkeley, got into Berkeley, had a great experience as an MBA student, um, coming to the, towards the end of that, really kind of really, it really reignited my love of academia, which I had loved as an undergrad. I, you know, I loved the studying. Uh, so I decided, oh, maybe I'll do a PhD. Where shall I do a PhD? Well, I'm at Berkeley. I'll go to Berkeley, <laughs> apply to Berkeley, and ended up in the PhD program. So I feel like at each of these stages, it was very unplanned on my part, uh, lots of serendipity involved, um, but really, uh, you know, once I got into the PhD program, I, I just, I, it's my home, you know, like the university kind of is my home. And I just knew really as soon as I got back into the MBA, when I, as soon as I got into the MBA program, it's like, this is where I'm meant to be, you know? Um, and so I, I, that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Did you, uh, in Berkeley as an MBA student, did you know who you were going to work with? when you joined the PhD program or did you um, get to know the professors and their research and, and how did that process work out so that you ended up working, uh, your, your advisor was uh, Oliver Williamson and, and what stage was he in his career and what, what role did he play in your intellectual development? Yeah, so let me answer that in two parts. I'll, I'll get to Williamson in a moment, but I think that, um, um, so, I decided that I wanted to do pursue a PhD before I really decided what I wanted to pursue a PhD in, to be perfectly honest. So after my first year in the MBA program, um, 
I'd actually taken more finance courses than anything else at that point. And so I thought maybe I'll do a PhD in finance. And then I started thinking about it and thinking, oh, that means I actually have to like teach finance and like research in finance. Maybe I don't want to do that. And so I had really enjoyed um, the courses that I'd taken. Actually with David Vogel, who's a business and public policy, they had a business and public policy group. And so the kind of the economics and the business and public policy was some of the, were what I was really interested in. And so in my second year of, of the MBA program, I actually took a PhD seminar with the other, in the BPP program. Uh, I can't, I don't think I did very well in the, <laughs> I don't think I was a great PhD student as an MBA student. You can just imagine if one of your MBA students kind of drops into a PhD class, they probably like, I was probably continually derailing the conversation is my guess. Um, but it was sufficient to really, you know, persuade me that this is what I wanted to do. And I was super lucky to have really strong mentors uh, through that transition. So the people who really kind of got me into the PhD program was, one of them was David Vogel. I actually got my worst grade as an MBA student from David Vogel. And so I thought, when I was thinking about taking a PhD, I thought, okay, I'm gonna ask David, because if he thinks I shouldn't, I know he'll tell me. And so he was like very encouraging at the get-go. Um, Janet Yellen was at Berkeley while I was there and I'd taken a couple of classes with Janet as a as an MBA student and I also so I also kind of talked to her about it and she was super kind of encouraging and very strong about what she thought I should do as a PhD student so that was really really good and then um, Oliver Williamson I didn't know at all as an MBA student he didn't teach MBAs my only contact with him actually as an MBA student was I had entered into, they had a speaking competition um, for MBA students where you had to do a speech based on a public policy issue. And that year it was when the whole Japan scare was on. So I think our subject was um, the, 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 like the takeover of the US by the Japanese, by Japanese business, you know. Um, and so, and I, I did pretty, I didn't win, but I did pretty well in that contest. I got into the final and Williamson was actually one of the judges. So he was also kind of encouraging, but I didn't really know him very well. Um, and it was only when I got into the PhD program and, uh, William, uh, Williamson, Oliver Williamson was actually just arrived in the PhD program. I think, uh, arrived at Berkeley only about the year before, um, and, uh, all of the first year PhD students in, business, in the business and public, public policy group, as well as some of the uh, econ students like Peter Klein, Nick Ajiris were, were in that class too. Um, we all took uh, Williamson's class um, and I, I was listening to the previous Meet the Scholar with, um, with Joe Mahoney uh, just, just before. And, I, and he was saying about how when he read Markets and Hierarchies, it really kind of spoke to him and it really made sense to him and helped him to make sense of the world in many ways. And that's kind of how I felt about um, the transaction cost kind of agenda. And, and what was amazing about that class, it was actually right about the time um, when uh, when uh, Oliver was, was writing the uh, Economic Institutions of Capitalism. And he essentially kind of like took us 
through transaction cost economics, kind of building it from the ground up in that class. So we, we read all of the, you know, the pieces around the behavioral underpinnings and that. And so it was a fantastic, just a, a fantastic learning uh, experience. And it really did, I think that's what created kind of that cohort of, of students who then, you know, who we went on uh, to work with, with, with Williamson as a dis, in our dissertation work. And, uh, and, and, you know, it really created such a, a community of scholars around those ideas uh, that I, honestly, I think that was also part of what was so appealing to me. It wasn't, it was the ideas themselves, but it was also this, this feeling of being, you know, part of, a, of an intellectual community uh, uh, with a mission, you know, we were, we were, we were on a mission. Uh, and there was something super uh, motivating about that. Um, sorry, go ahead. I think and I think your, your contribution was to marry the theory with empirics. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your dissertation research and how you came to your topic. Yeah. Um, maybe any advice that you have along the way. Yeah. Yeah, so what I should also say about, you know, in terms of this serendipity thing. Um, so prior to coming to Berkeley, uh, uh, Williamson hadn't worked with that many students, right? If you look prior to Berkeley, who it was who, who we had worked with directly, it was really like Scott Maston and, and maybe one or two others, but really that was not his thing. You know, he was on his own mission. I think he just wasn't that. Uh, open to working with students when he was at Penn or when he was at Yale, etc. And when he came to Berkeley, it was a, a, a very distinct decision on his part that he felt like, I think he, it was in some ways really instrumental. He felt like his, the theory and his body of work had reached a sufficient stage of maturity that it was now time to promulgate it, you know, and it was like, okay, I need students to kind of go out there and change the world, you know, and, and, and carry it on. And I do think there was a little bit of instrumentalism on his part uh, in that. Now, once he had made that decision, he was incredibly um, committed to his students and, 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 you know, like really super generous with his, his time and, and his attention and, um, and a really, uh, a very particular, but a, very, a really phenomenal um, advisor. And so um, I think that what happened was, as I was kind of going into the dissertation phase, I had a, the devil's own time kind of coming up with a viable topic. Uh, I actually started a dissertation that was looking at the impact of different types of trade policy on organization. I, I knew I wanted to do something in international and I was pretty interested in in kind of trade policy. I'd done trade as one of my fields in, uh, I'd done international as one of the fields in the, in the econ masters that I did along the way. Um, and um, so that's what I thought I was gonna do. And I worked on that thing. And I even, I even did my, like defended a proposal based on this like link between uh, trade protection and um, an, an organization. And so I had kind of a, to be honest, kind of a lame theoretical uh, framework for thinking about that, but I could never marry it with data. I just never managed to kind of find any data. Um, and 
you know, you say that one of my uh, approaches was, was empirical. Williamson was really, he was, he, he encouraged everybody to be empirical. I don't think he was that interested in somebody else working on the, on refining the theory. He, what he really thought was missing was the empirical base. So if you were working with uh, Williamson, he was always encouraging you to, you know, to do these empirical studies. Uh, he wasn't that interested in formalism. At one point, I remember I wrote what I thought was a very elegant model, you know, like formalizing part of TCE, and he, he just basically ripped it up in front of my eyes, I think. Um, so, so I really nearly quit. I mean, I, I was long in the PhD program, and having kind of I was in the throes of this like failed dissertation. I decided I was going to quit the program. And in fact, I wrote to Williamson when he was, he used to go off to his cottage in the, the summers. Um, and I wrote to him at his cottage in Wisconsin and said, you know, basically all is lost. I program, you know, sorry and thank you. And the next thing I know, I get a phone call from him and, uh, and almost verbatim, his, his, you know, his words were, Joanne, you can't leave the program. There's too much work to be done. He's like, hybrids, think hybrids. <laughs> because that happened to be something that he was just kind of interested in at the time. And, and so I didn't leave. And, um, and, I, um, I, and, and I happened to be, and that was around, so I, I should back up a second. The other super important person to me in, my dis in, in the PhD program, and one who for sure I wouldn't be here without, was David Mowry, right? So he was the other, I would say, the other kind of um, really, really incredibly important underpinning for me. And during this whole time when I was going through this existential crisis and, you know, not making any progress and about to fall out, to leave the program, it wasn't Williamson that I was going to bug in the office, you know, every week or every couple of weeks. It was David Maury. David Maury basically made me come to his office every two weeks. Uh, and we had a meeting. And even if it was just basically me just sitting there going, I haven't done anything. I, you know, he still made me go and, uh, and sit with him. And it was just around about that time when the uh, Caddy Alliance data kind of fell in his lap. And he kind of threw it into my lap. And it was just one of those things where I won't say it all just came together in a in a flash, but it was again serendipity. It's like I think I had done enough of the preparatory work that I could see the opportunity. You know, I may not have seen that opportunity had it happened a year earlier, um, but honestly, I think it was only, I think it was essentially a year between me, you know, dropping out of the program and me being on the job market. So. Once it kind of started coming together, it actually came together really fast, but oh boy, it was a long time coming. Wow, serendipity. Yeah, but the prepared mind, I think you're making that point very clear. Um, so, so I guess with, uh, with the experience that you had in, with, at Berkeley, are there any other, um, you know, just reflecting on that, um, the mentorship that you got, um, yeah. what kind of mentorship do you, do you provide now and, and how do you pay it forward, I guess, is, is the... So, um, yeah, this is an issue that's very near and dear to my heart. I might even tear up as I'm saying this because I think mentorship is, is 
is central, right? When I when I look back at kind of how did I get from through this, you know, me being, I don't want to say ditzy, but certainly kind of unfocused along the way. How did I still manage to somehow muddle my way through? It really comes down to having had incredible mentors at every stage of the way, at every single step of the way, I can look back and I can point to, if it had not been for the mentorship of, you know, like David Vogel, Janet Yellen, Oliver Williamson, David Mowry, Bronwyn Hall. Uh, then when I went, got to Michigan, there was Francine Lafontaine, there was uh, Will Mitchell, there was Bernie Young. Uh, when I got, uh, Anita McGann, you know, played incredibly important roles at different stages of my career. And I know I'm missing a, a whole bunch too, but, but really like fantastically important uh, in terms of just support and advice and role models and, and all the rest of it. And so that's also been, you know, on the other side of it, that's also been the thing that I probably get the most, um, yeah, see I am. <laughs> It's probably the thing that I get the most satisfaction out of has been working with um, junior scholars, PhD students, junior scholars, um, just junior colleagues, you know, like if somebody calls me up and says, John, I have this issue I want to talk about and, and, you know, we'll chat and then they'll go, oh, I'm really sorry I took your time, you know, I know you're really busy and I'm like, are you kidding? This is, this is like the best thing that happened to me all month, <laughs> just kind of that chance to, you know, like kind of share and and, um, and, and, and feel like you're seeing people move along, you know? Um, so I think that sometimes I empathize too much with students who are going through difficulties uh, because I was there, you know, I'm usually a, I proselytize about, you know, going to counseling because that's what it took to get me, to get me kind of uh, back in along the way. Um, but I do, I get, I get huge satisfaction out of it. And I, and I also think, you know, for junior scholars. So mentorship is a tricky thing, right? Um, I think if you are, if you, if you're too instrumental in terms of going out and, and, and searching for a mentor, you know, if you're, if you think, oh, I, I should like work with that person because they'll be a great, you know, they're really important and they'll be a great mentor. And people see through that right away. And it, and, and it, it can be really counterproductive. But at the same time, you have to be really open to mentorship. I think that is the key, right? It's like with all of those different mentoring uh, relationships, they started with, you know, somebody who, for whatever reason, saw something and, and reached out to engage with, with me. And I, was, I, and, and I was really open to it. I was like so ready to, to engage back. Um, and because in some ways, there's got to be something in it for the mentor and the mentee, uh, right? And so, and similarly, when I've, you know, when I think that I think of the people who I've remained closest to, the junior colleagues who I've remained closest to over the years, it's those with whom uh, there's this sense of a real kind of reciprocation in the, uh, in the relationship. And that, as I say, I mean, I, it, I genuinely feel that many times I leave these conversations feeling so, so happy and so enriched. And like, I've had this, you know, like really um, energizing conversation, whether it be on, you know, core intellectual issues or whether it just be along 
how the heck do I kind of, you know, juggle work and life or, you know, I'm thinking about not having kids yet because of this. What do you think? Or, you know, these big life questions are, are these really deep intellectual questions and the best kind of mentor mentee relationships are when it runs the gamut, you know? So um, if you do start new projects, what are there, is there a, uh, you know, is there a spider sense that gets you thinking, oh, this is, this sounds really interesting, or is it part of sort of an agenda that you've, all, that you've had coming in, and, and so the ideas are just kind of fitting into that agenda. Um, yeah. How open are you to the, the serendipity versus maybe a, a, a program that you're, that you're, it, it, I'm sure it probably just depends yeah. at what stage of the career you're at, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so this is, yeah, no, this is serendipity. So, so one of the things which is really true about me and that you can probably see by looking at my Vita is I'm horrible at starting projects. I am not somebody who sits there with kind of like a million ideas all just ready to tee up and I have like a million projects going at once. It's always been really hard for me starting projects. So right back to my dissertation, right? It was like, it was the hardest thing, just kind of getting over. I'm, I'm a real second guesser. So it's not that I don't have ideas. It's just that I'll have an idea and I immediately squash it, right? So, so I'm, I'm a terrible starter of projects. Um, but I do have a very, I have a, I do have an agenda, right? Um, so what's, what's tended to happen a lot of times is that the paper, I almost always co-author, right? I haven't really solo-authored anything since my dissertation. I'm a real, I'm, I'm definitely a, a fan of co-authoring. I don't think, honestly, I don't think I have the, my attempts at doing solo papers and I have had attempts have never really gone. And I, and, and I think it's some kind of something missing in my psychology. Um, but where I've been, had really successful, I think, co-authorships is when, some of my favorite projects, in fact, that I've worked on, some of them I've initiated, right? It's, I'm not going to say that I'm always the free writer. Some, some I've initiated and brought somebody else on to work on it. But sometimes some of my favorite projects have been ones where somebody had already started a paper, or maybe it was something that was kind of hanging over from their dissertation or something. They really didn't know what to do with it. It kind of wasn't working. It wasn't really going anywhere. And we would have a conversation and I would just kind of like go, yeah, but you could do like this. And it's like, take the paper that was here. And if you do this, it would be so cool. And so it's their data, you know, it's like, I'm really free riding in that sense. But there's something about just seeing that kernel of it. And then we start working on it. And where I will give myself some credit is I'm a really good finisher. I'm not a good starter, but I'm a good finisher. And so, you know, if we get that kind of serendipity where it really was their project to be with. So if you look at my work with Chris Machen, that's true. If you look at my work with Elena Colchina, it's true. If you look at my work with Fabrice, it was true. It's true. Uh, I have a, I have an odd paper with uh, Garup Deshpander that was, that was also true. So a bunch of them are ones where, you know, real, oh, Tetsuo Wada. So I have a lot of these where it, it's somebody else's data to begin with. And in some ways, the nub of the paper was already in existence. But, but you know, the difference between that nub of the paper at the beginning and then what we finished up with, I think every one of them would, would, would agree with me that it took it quite a long way. You know, it's, it wasn't just a, a refining and polishing. It really was a, 
a step change, but it was, but I think that, that, that's really idiosyncratic about me. I don't actually know anybody else who's, who's quite as bad at me at starting uh, projects. Um, but um, yeah, but that's kind of how it goes. But when they work, it's because it, it dovetails so well with my agenda, right? And it's, be, it's because I have this very particular kind of view of the world and this kind of apparatus that I kind of work out of. That's why I see what I see in these papers that, that kind of pre-exist. Well, if I can turn a little bit to a practical element, which is that you said that you're a great finisher. Are there any, um, any tips or tricks that you pass along to maybe others who aren't so great at finishing projects to help them, you know, get over the hump and, and, uh, and, and be successful in finishing? So, or maybe things that you've learned from your diverse co-authors that you take with you yeah. now. Yeah. So I think it is one of, it's actually one of the things that I think is a huge advantage in co-authoring and one of the reasons why Sometimes I choose who I want to co-author with before I even before we decide what we're going to co-author on, uh, and that is partly because I think that a, a really good co-authoring relationship both has you have complementarities in terms of skill sets, right? But you also have some kind of complementarities from a kind of temperament perspective, and then just naturally, what I often find with with uh, joint projects is that there's always stages along the way where you lose hope, right? There's always stages along the way where you go, this is just not gonna work. And what I find is that with, with co-authors, you tend to be on this like reverse sine wave cycle, you know, right? So just when you're at the lowest, your co-author comes along and goes, no, no, but we could do X, right? And similarly, if my co-author's in the doldrums, I'll often find that I'm, you know, being able to not just be a cheerleader, but you actually kind of come up with some idea or whatever. And so I think that, that is the beauty of a productive co-authorship is that you complement each other, not just from a skill set point of view, but somehow temperamentally so that you're able to actually be encouraging of each other rather than just getting into some death spiral together, you know. Uh, so that's one thing. I think co-authorships are really important in that respect, the right co-authors. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, I think one of the, you know, when it comes to finishing, I think um, once you've submitted a paper and you have an r and R, I think, hey, don't submit your papers too early. I know people who like to like just throw it at the, the walls. I, I don't. I, I don't want to send a paper out until I'm, I, I am, won't say I'm satisfied with it, but I, you know, I, I'm ha happy on some, I, I, I feel like it's ready. Um, and so I will say that most of my papers, maybe this is, I, I haven't had a lot of rejections along the way. I mean, I, I think probably fewer than that normal because of that. I don't write that many papers and I tend to hold on to them maybe a little too long sometimes. Um, but once you get that R&R, &R, uh, first I think you should, you know, give it a quick read and throw it in a drawer for, for a week, right? Because the first reaction is always, Ah, they're so wrong. Uh, and in fact, I remember one of the times with uh, one of the papers that I wrote with Chris and Machen, um, I got the reviews back and I, I was on my way to class or something. So I scanned the letter. I thought, it's been rejected. So I threw it in the drawer 
I didn't look at it for like another two weeks because it was really a busy time. It was like the end of semester or something. I opened it up and it's like, oh, wait a minute. It's actually an R&R. &R. <laughs> it was like so negative, the tone, that I just assumed it was a rejection. And so, you know, but then by that time, my, I'd, I'd processed all that hate. <laughs> and so then you really, you know, I think really taking seriously those reviews and even if you disagree with it, even if you think they're just wrong, at the very minimum, it means that you did not communicate effectively, right? So you should never dismiss any comment that a reviewer uh, makes, because as I say, they may not be correct, but if they're not correct, chances are it's because you miscommunicated, not because they're stupid, right? Um, so I think that that is probably why I think I'm a good finisher, is I think I can pretty much I can think of one, I think I've only, I think I only have one exception to this. I think pretty much through my career, when I've gotten an r and R, I've parlayed it into a, a publication, even if it was a very long, it was, you know, posed as a very long shot r and R. And that is because I think I, I like the problem solving aspect of working through uh, revisions. And a lot of people hate that stage, right? Because they're sick of the project already. I actually, I, just some reason it's a good fit for me and I, I enjoy actually working through those problems and, and uh, communicating yeah, the craft of it. Right, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I, and the, I guess there's that emotional side in that having that co-author, great co-authors help ride out some of that, uh, that emotional uh, roller coaster. Um, yeah. uh, um, now, we've talked a little bit about your uh, your experiences at, uh, um, in publication and collaboration. And now you're kind of in a different stage of your career, right? You're, you're an administrator for a few years, if I'm not yeah. correct. And, yeah. and um, what's it like kind of in, maybe there are some of us who are, are also doing administrative work. How do you, are you able to maintain a foot in the research? Uh, and, or how do you, how are you imagining getting back into it and et cetera, et cetera? So I'll admit that's been, I, I knew it was going to be hard and it has been hard. Um, I, I, I um, resisted doing any kind of major administrative role uh, for the longest time. Um, in part because I, I, I knew that I would have a hard time setting boundaries and, and, and really, you know, maintaining productivity. I, I'm not a high productivity researcher to begin with and, you know, um and so i really i, I really did resist it a, a long long time but i also do have any my own personal ethos is that we are all incredibly privileged to have the positions that we do as academics and i think that everybody who can and has the capability uh should take on at least one significant administrative role over the course of their career for that, you know, basically to give some, to, to help to run the school at some point, because if the profs don't run the school, then the administrators, you know, the true administrators will, and then we'll all be worse off. So I think it's important that, that faculty do uh, step up and take up a, a, a big role at some point. And so I decided that, you know, being, I was, I was the uh, associate dean and vice dean faculty uh, so, you know, it's the faculty dean role, which is, it's a pretty big role. Um, I did that for four years. I, I should have been on sabbatical as we speak, 
I thought I was going to be done and that I was going to be back getting my research uh, back up and running. But then, you know, a few things happened, uh, COVID partly, but also our dean uh, decamped relatively quickly because he's now the head of the Bank of Canada. And that's not the kind of move that you get a lot of um, warning about. So uh, really just within a few weeks at the end of June, um, uh, he, he left. Uh, the, uh, another of the, the kind of the senior vice dean, if you like, became uh, interim dean. And so I've agreed to take on his vice dean role for one year. So now I'm vice dean of research strategy and resources, whatever that means. Um, so I, I'm doing this for one more year and then I'll, and then I'll be on leave. <laughs> Um, with the hope that I'll, I'll uh, get things back and running. Because for a while, just kind of momentum carried, you know, momentum can carry you uh, with your research uh, through an admin role. And I think somebody who was a better pipeline manager than me could probably do a better job. Joel Baum did the faculty role before me and he stayed amazingly productive through it. So I know it's not impossible. I just knew that it would be impossible for me. Um, and so, as I say, Momentum uh, took me for a while because I like working on the ends of papers, but I haven't been able, I haven't started anything new really, honestly, since I, since I took the big admin role. So I guess this is a caution. I'm a cautionary tale. You know, don't do it until you can, don't do it until um, you um, can kind of handle the, the, the hit in productivity either because you're so productive that you can do that and still carry on or because uh, like me, you're, you're at a point where you, you feel like, okay, um, I'm, I, I feel like it's important to do this for the school. Right. And as a female professor um, and in this role uh, where you make decisions and policies that affect a lot of, uh, you know, your, your colleagues, do you get a, do you have a certain perspective that you, that you took into this or, or did you discover that you had a certain perspective um, based on your own experience and, and um, you know? Uh... Um, yeah, so I, I was actually really lucky coming into this role that, that uh, the Dean and uh, Ken Kors, who was the, who's now our interim Dean, um, were, they, they were really kind of on a mission to uh, increase really kind of the, the transparency and the equity around uh, policies related to um, the faculty and other things in the school. And so that was also part of what appealed to me, to be honest, to, to be in the role. And so I do think that, you know, you, you, you can't make, it, universities are very inert institutions, um, but on the, on the margin, um, I, I've, I've always been a kind of a work it from the inside kind of feminist and I am a feminist but I'm a work it from the inside feminist rather than a than a you know blow up the bridges kind of person and so um, there is an opportunity I think uh, in this kind of role to to have on the margin to have some effect on that so we've we've we, we have made some progress on on um, on uh, on gender uh, the gender distribution in the faculty. I have made some progress on um, uh, kind of uh, uh, family friendly and female friendly um, uh, policies, you know, like the kind of the soft policies 
Um, we have done a really, I think collectively done a really good job of increasing the transparency around a variety of different policies, because I think a lot of times where inequities come in in a university setting is that you're either in the know or you're not in the know. And a lot of the, you know, there's, there's often a lot of special deals in universities. And so one of our mantras has been, you know, no more special deals, which isn't the same as saying that you treat everybody the same, but rather that everybody kind of understands the basis on which these decisions are made. And everybody has equal access to information about, you know, like buyout policies or these kind of things, because there were some ridiculous things where we didn't have a policy, but it was never advertised. And so some people knew about it and took advantage of it all the time. And other people just didn't even know about it. And those are the kinds of things that I think on the margin have a big impact on uh, kind of equity and inclusiveness uh, in, in the academy. And so that's definitely been, uh, if I've had a passion as an administrator, it's pretty hard to associate passion with administration, I will say. <laughs> but um, to the extent that I have had one, it has been that. Um, and, and, you know, and, and we already knew that we needed to expand that lens beyond gender to other kind of uh, racialized, and as we call it in Canada, equity-seeking groups. Um, and to be honest, we started it with gender not because it's you know first first among those but rather because a it's 50 percent of the population so you're dealing with a big pool and b it's something that is relatively easy to track and to identify and all the rest of it as you expand beyond that category into as i say other equity seeking groups we have real problems around uh data availability and there's there's a lot it, it becomes a lot more complicated so we're as, we, as everybody else is, we are grappling with it now, both because this is a moment, um, and I think it's you know it's a it's a wave that we need to uh, ride, not just because you know for PR, but because there's an energy that we want to capture right now. But it also was it's also for me at least a very natural progression of some of the policies that we'd put in place and some of the things that we've been thinking of around gender um, are. You know, a lot of those practices were really about inclusiveness, no matter what, right? But but I think that we're trying to be a little bit more targeted right now, uh, particularly for we have some groups that are just um, criminally underrepresented within our faculty, uh, and uh, and so that's something that we're. But it, it's there's no there's no quick fixes. So the things that we're putting in place right now probably won't pay off for five, ten years down the, the line in terms of real real outputs but um but that's yeah so if there's one thing that i want to kind of achieve in this one year that i have uh in this particular role uh that's that's what i just basically to hold people's uh what's the expression just keep people on it you know and that, like um and um and, and keep moving forward albeit slowly well i can hear the passion so that's wonderful um <laughs> I have one last question, and then I, I think we're, what we're going to do is then turn it over to, um, first, uh, we're going to ask everybody to take a, a, a screenshot. But um, maybe one quick question for you is, you mentioned, and this is just bringing us up to date now, um, with your international business background, one of the participants asked the question, I want to send it over to you. Um, what what has you know this crisis that we're going through now what has it raised for you in terms of um 
you know, oh, here are some core IB concepts that's just being reinforced, or here are, here's work that we need to do because in fact it's highlighting areas that we don't know much about. And I was just wondering if you have any thoughts and maybe building on your special issue uh, yeah. uh, that, you, that you did last, last year. I mean, I think there are so many, there are so many issues that have really kind of come into focus um, with the current uh, crisis. And I mean, everything from the, you know, just to kind of keep going on the inequality uh, uh, thing. I mean, it, it is so sharply brought into focus, the, the different dimensions of inequality uh, that exist, uh, not only just in North America, but in other places too. From, from an international business point of view, I think one of the things that it has just, again, really brought into focus is the uh, fragility that can exist in international supply chains and the kinds of, for me, I'm, you know, one of the things that I think is really, um, I, I've always thought in some ways of, of the internet, of international business as being, uh, an arena that really just it's it's not that things are different in kind when you look internationally necessarily but they bring certain issues into very sharp focus right and they really give you a way to kind of identify and really uh, uh really examine in more in more depth uh, a particular um set of issues so you know one of the things that i've been quite increasingly interested in in uh in recent years is the um, kind of uh, the informal contracting, you know, relation contracting, however, however you want to um, uh, define that, and kind of these these informal and other uh, supports for uh, cooperation, like outside of kind of formal governance structures. And I think that one of the things that's clearly true within the international context is, you know, just how the, it, it's very difficult to rely on legal institutions, and so these. It, it, it brings into it again brings into sharp focus what are the supports and the limits of um, extra legal if you like uh, contract enforcement etc um, and I think that sometimes we can get all kumbaya about you know trust in in uh, relationships in, in 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 commercial relationships and I think something like this really you know lets you know that yeah 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 we trust each other and everything's really nice until until it all hits the fan and then it all just crumbles, right? And so I think that one of the, the it, it, it has um, highlighted for sure how interdependent individuals and economies are across the globe at this point. It has highlighted the importance of robust and, um, uh, kind of stable supply chain relationships and uh, cooperative relationships. And it also has brought into very sharp focus the limits of thereof. Um, and I don't, I don't even begin to, um, I wouldn't even begin to suggest what I think are the specific research questions that should be coming out of that. Uh, but I think that these are big issues, even just within the narrow world that I live in. Right. I mean, I, I don't want to suggest that this is the biggest set of issues that come out of the current crisis, but obviously it's the set of issues that is closest to uh, the kind of work that I that I do. Okay. What well, I what I know so we're going to get and what I'm not looking forward to is the 10 to the power of N of papers on 
any random subject you can think of that is going to use the COVID shock as their instrument. It's going to happen. I am not looking forward to it. I'm sure there'll be a few that are phenomenal. And then there'll be a whole ton more that is like, yeah, great instrument, but why the heck do we care about your question? Right? So, yeah. So <laughs> that's my little rant. Yeah, important, important warning, important warning for sure. <laughs> Um, well, I think we're at this, a, a good point now where I think if uh, the participants um, who can, uh, can uh, put on their camera, uh, we're going to do a quick screenshot. Thank you so much. Um, uh, a quick screenshot so we can continue to publicize the uh, series, um, Meet the Scholars series, and hopefully get, get others to join future. How about I count to three, ha, huh? and then everyone can smile Thank at the you. camera. All yeah. right, so one, two, three, cheese. Okay, I think we're good. Okay, thank you. Um, now I think that uh, since I've had a chance to ask questions, um, I'm going to turn it over to the participants and also uh, Athene has kindly uh, also uh, agreed to sort of moderate the, the Q&A part of, of this. So, um, at this point, I really encourage uh, anyone there to, to, to pose a question to Joanne. Thank you, Ha, for the... Uh... Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Ha. Um, so, uh, as Ha said, you know, please feel free to post questions in the chat. Uh, and while you're thinking about what you want to ask, let me ask a question and use my prerogative to do that. Uh, so, Joanne, um, um, you know, I was just thinking, it was just as I was, I was listening to you talk and I was thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, this is kind of the 10 year anniversary of the, the, the SRI piece, the sort of opinion piece that you and, and the SRI community wrote yeah. uh, in, in Strategic Org, right? Uh, which, you know, of course, you know, has been in many ways for me coming out as a PhD student at that sort of point was kind of a big deal. And I think for many people it was. So, you know, in the decade that's gone by, you know, how do you think, uh, you know, how do you see the sort of evolution of those ideas? You, mm. you think we've made progress? What are some things we maybe haven't made progress on? I actually think we've made a huge amount of progress. Um, so, uh, for those who, who perhaps don't know, so like the strategy, the strategy research initiative that a bunch of us, Mike Ryle was really the, uh, the, initial impetus but there were a bunch of us um i got together with and it was the the idea for it was a little bit of a generational pro, pro project if you like we're all kind of around the same kind of generation academically speaking um and uh it did come out of some dissatisfaction with um with with kind of the, the state of the field, very grandiose, uh, but also with some of the, you know, kind of the editorial uh, policies at the, at the journals and stuff. And, um, and so in that piece, you know, it really was in some ways this call to action for um, us to think more carefully about things on, this, on the theoretical side, to think more carefully about things on the empirical side and around identification. We weren't the only ones who were talking about it, obviously, at the time, there were a few really good essays on, on some of those uh, subjects at the time. 
Um, and we also, of course, did the PhD reader and the, and the PhD workshops at that time, which is also, you know, was probably my, that was my passion project within the SRA. Um, and what's interesting is that in the 10 years from that, at, at the time it created some anger, I will say, there was some pushback uh, from people uh, of, two, of two varieties. And I think, you know, with some, with, with some justification, one kind of uh, critique was this is kind of, you know, um, this is nothing very new and this bunch of us been saying these things and you guys are, you know, coming in like you're the only ones who, who understand this. And in fact, a lot of us understand this. And I think that was a very, that was a legitimate critique. I think it was worth saying in the form that we said it, but, uh, but still, you know, I, I think we were probably a little overreaching in our claim for novelty. Um, um, so there was that critique, and then there was the other critique, which I think is actually much, was a little bit more kind of knee-jerk, which is, yeah, yeah, this is all very well, but if you want to ask interesting questions, you know, you have to kind of just wave your hands a little bit when it comes to uh, the, the, the rigor of the theory or the rigor of the empirics that, you know, if, if we focus too much on empirics that we're just going to stop asking interesting questions. Um, and I, and, and I think that was, you know, that was just kind of not a very productive or fortunate or, or fortunate critique. What I think has happened in the interim is that there was a little while where everybody was kind of obsessed about identification and there were a lot of people acting like deers caught in headlights, you know, it's like, we don't really know how to do this and strategy questions really are complicated. Uh, we're never going to find the perfect instrument, so we might as well all quit and go home, or we all have to start doing field experiments. So that's field experiments is one, been one uh, response to this, if you like, right? What I think has been, the, in some ways, the more uh, the healthier response, and what I see a heck of a lot more of now uh, in in uh, in strategy research, is that people are really grappling with issues of identification, and they're grappling with it both from a theoretical perspective, you know, like actually thinking about strategic choice rather than just thinking of strategy choices serendipitous somehow. So I think that people are grappling with it when it comes to actually looking for explanations of phenomena. And I think that they're grappling with it in their um, empirical work a lot more. Um, the bad version of this is where they just do business as usual and then they're doing an appendix some lame two steps two stage thing with a made-up instrument and you know look it still works okay that that's to me not the, the 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 good version of it but the good version of it is okay we recognize that this is an issue we actually think clearly about where you know where the potential problems are and then you actually do a really good job of interrogating the data and I'm doing, you know, like really simple, I'm a huge fan of descriptive statistics. Uh, you actually look, you know, if we think this matters, can we see people making choices based on this? You know, is it the case that things in hierarchies look different than things in markets? We would hope that they do, you know, um, and they do some of that. And then they do um, the, in some cases, they get very creative and come up with a great instrument. In some cases, they're really not able to come up with a great instrument, so they do the best that they can. But again, you triangulate, right? You're never going to get it perfect. So you see a lot, I mean, 
huge, huge uh, advance in, in terms of the thoughtfulness of the approach over, yeah, 10 years, ago, 10 years ago, certainly over 15 years ago when we were pretty much, you know, Carl mentioned Mary Oxley Silverman. We were oblivious to this stuff in, in the mid 90s. I mean, it's like terrible when it comes to uh, identification issues, really, but you know. Um, so, so and, and in the meantime, of course, a lot of the SRI founders are now in various editorial positions across. So we have infiltrated the, the, uh, the journals in some sense. And, and so that's part of why you see a change in the journal policies. Um, great. So um, I do have a, a question in chat, uh, which is kind of related, I guess. Uh, so I'm going to let Yuping ask her question rather than trying to read it out to you. You think you want to just unmute and ask? Yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you for uh, the wonderful discussion. So I have a, a related question. I'm a PhD student in Colorado. So um, right now there are many new phenomena for us to explore such as AI and machine learning. And, but there are also uh, many like uh, traditional and classic studies. So. I wonder do, uh, if you have any suggestions for PhD students um, about how to choose between uh, like a study versus a new phenomenon um, versus more uh, classic studies, as well as how to theorize or find theoretical explanations for those new phenomena. Thank you. Cool. That's a that's, you're asking a question of the person who just said she's terrible at coming up with a research question. So I, I'm probably the last person to, uh, to be able to give any real insight there. But I do think that, and this is a little trite, but it's true. You know, we're in this for the long haul. And so in terms of choosing a dissertation topic, um, there's, uh, to my mind, there are two key ingredients that a dissertation has to have. Okay, maybe three, but really two from the point of view of this. One, it has to be doable, right? So when I say that it has to be doable, it has to be, you know, like I do think that uh, choosing a phenomenon where you have a sense of how you could actually get data, etc., cetera, uh, it, it has to be uh, doable, but it also has to be interesting to you. And I think that is like really key as well. I think that trying to choose if you're saying if if you're trying to decide what dissertation to do based on how interested others will be in the topic, I think in some ways you're asking the wrong question. If you find a topic that is very interested to interesting to you, and if you are then and then if you go into it with a curious mindset, both about the topic you're interested in but also curious about the literature in which you're kind of living in, um, you will find a way to relate this topic that you are interested in to the debates that are going on in the literature. Because I do think that, you know, to your point, um, you, you need to, it, it's not about, is it the, the newest, you know, sexiest topic versus the tried and true. It really is about, can you connect what you're interested in learning about to some of these active and interesting debates that are currently going on in your field? 
right? Um, and I think if you find a topic that you are genuinely interested in, a phenomenon or a theoretical question, you know, so it, it, some people start with a theoretical question as the nub of their project. Some people start off with, you know, like this phenomenon or this just weird thing that they've seen out there. I think if you find one of those that you are genuinely interested in and you are curious and, 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 and you know, really read with a curious mind around, you will find a way to, to make your topic interesting to others. But if you're not interested in your topic, nobody else will be interested in your topic. Right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, and since we are talking about uh, PhD students, and I see an upvote for Zhao's question about, so let's think about PhD students on the other side of that dissertation thing, you know, coming close to graduation, worrying about what the pandemic means for short term and long term job prospects. Yeah. Any thoughts for, for them? Yeah. Um, cool. That's a that's the million dollar question, right? Um, so it's honestly it's the million dollar question. We don't know what's gonna happen. If anybody tells you they do know what's gonna happen over the next, especially over the next couple of years, um, I think they're 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 blowing smoke. I mean, I've been deep in it uh, in terms of the planning for the uh, coming year, and we are uh, still not not sure. There is one. In terms of the of business schools and kind of like the role of business schools and, and you know, will our industry kind of still exist uh, going forward? I'm actually more optimistic about that even now than I was um, a little while ago, because what I think is um, what I'm hearing, at least from all of the, the, uh, the um, advisory people to the school who are, you know, who are uh, business people is that uh, the kinds of skills that business schools can deliver is still are still definitely the kinds of skills that businesses are looking for. Um, I think that the online stuff um, will shake things up a little bit, um, but that what is becoming increasingly evident, or maybe just reaffirming what people suspected, which is that there's lots of potential in online. Uh, but there are real, real limits to online and that students do want to be, you know, physically in place and all the rest of it. Um, so I think long, medium, medium, long term in terms of job prospects, I don't see, no, long term, who knows, long term, in the long term, we're all dead. Um, but in the, in the medium term, I, I, I feel quite optimistic. I think what happens, you know, like next year or the year after in terms of the job market, really depends on what happens with university budgets and they seem to be kind of all over the map at the moment um we are hiring in strategy next year at rotman uh just fyi um and uh and i you know and i think there will be other schools that are hiring but it, it, it might it might be a tricky year it might be a tricky year i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie yeah um so yeah yeah. Um, so kind of moving a little bit further from, from PhD, I know we have a lot of PhD students, so we tend to sort of focus on that, but you know, some of us. Uh, so, um, you know, obviously you, you've 
over your career, you've done a lot of service to the profession. You were division chair for BPS when it was still BPS. Uh, you've been an AE at SMJ, at management science, at strategy science for the you know, starting point, and then of course for the special issue. Uh, how do you think about sort of service as part of this profession? What's exciting about it? What should people be wary about? Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, oh, I think that doing some service to the profession, you know, echoing what I said before, it, it is important for those of us who can. Um, and not everybody's suited to it. You know, I mean, there are some brilliant minds out there who we don't want anywhere near service obligations. <laughs> But, but for those of us who can, uh, <laughs> um, I think it's, it's, it's important that we do. I mean, the way I look at it is, it, you know, you've you got to think about service, the, the bucket of the service in a bucket, right? And, and, and you want to really think about how, what's the size of that bucket. And then within that, we have, we have lots and lots and lots of different ways that we can serve. So do it in the way that actually brings you some joy. Um, so for me, that's, I, I have probably done more than my share of service over the years. Um, but it's until recently, it's been very kind of research focused. So it's been on journals. Uh, it's very much, you know, aligned with my, I, my, the, the value that I place on and the benefit, you know, the, the, the utility that I get from mentorship. So the SRI stuff, you know, the PhD bootcamp and all of that was really, as I say, kind of my to 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 an extent was uh, uh, my baby, um, so and I've and I've worked with PhD students from day one. You know, my first year as an assistant professor, uh, Rochelle Sampson. I was on. She was. I was. I think I joined Rochelle's dissertation committee, like pretty much in my first year as a assistant uh, prof. Um, and and it is as people say, it's time consuming and all of that. But I I was just. I was really fortunate to work with great students. Juan Alcasa was a relatively early, I was on his committee as well. Um, so I was very fortunate in that way, but it was also, that's what I, you know, it's like, if I'm going to do service, I know I don't have to do this, but this is the bit that I want to do, right? So, so pick and choose. Don't say yes to everything, but don't say no to everything either. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, um, I mean, in addition to doing service to the profession, I know you've been involved with what is now SIOE, but used to be ISNI or whatever. Uh, and I know Zhao had sent me a question about that. Zhao, do you want to actually ask that question or? Uh, sure. Thanks, Joran. It's been, it's been fantastic. Um, so could you, I, I was just wondering, you know, you've also been very, very active in SIOE, uh, the Society for uh, Institutional and Organizational Economics, uh, which is the new name. So yeah. could you could you share a little bit about that, uh, about that society with the audience yeah. and especially, you know, if and how you think uh, that might be relevant or, or be of interest to strategy scholars? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, in some ways, I, I kind of fell into ISNI because it was started by, uh, so like the, the founding people were kind of North, uh, Williamson, um, um, oh, I forget. Well, Pablo Spiller was involved and, and Coast was involved, uh, used to be involved early on too. And I know I'm missing a couple of others, but really it was kind of Williamson that kind of dragged the BPP students into there. Um, and I think what I really like, uh, and, and it has evolved over the years, right? So it became kind of very institutional. 
And I think especially with they've got Bob Gibbons on board and there's been a, a, a real kind of um, uh, try to shift to, to bring it more back towards uh, organizational economics or, or expand it out back into there, right? But what, one of the things that I really like about that, I think there are a variety of these smaller associations that I think have real value as a community. And that is one where there is kind of a community around that. I see there's two or three different communities embedded within it in some sense. Um, so it's, it's useful as a community of scholars. So like Nanjia, right, who was one of my uh, a student at, at Rotman, she, I think, has been quite active in ISNIA now CEO. Um, and because she does work on kind of non-market strategy, I think, you know, I think she would say that she's found real value in, in that and you can you can get more traction in some ways, get more visibility within a somewhat smaller community. Um, so I think that anybody who has interest in non-market strategy or organizational economics or kind of institutions broadly defined, it's a it's it's a it's a really it's a welcoming and a and a interesting uh, community of scholars. It's also somewhere because it has a very broad international and disciplinary uh, footprint. It's a really fun conference to go to and just kind of go to see some really different papers. Uh, and it's a lot easier to navigate than something like Academy where yes, you can find lots of broad ranging and interesting papers at Academy. And you know, I mean, that's part of the value of Academy too. But there is also some value in, in these smaller conferences where you get to, you know, you kind of, it's just easier to navigate in some sense. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. Um, so, you know, speaking of community, and I have one more serious question, and I'm going to, Sabina, before she left, gave me a bunch of what I like to call silly questions, which she calls fun <laughs> questions. But I get to those. Um, before that, you know, since you were talking about community, and you mentioned this a little bit uh, earlier when we were talking about, you know, uh, uh, Williamson. Um, so, you know, I think for a lot of us, especially, I think in that sort of time period, uh, actually for a long period of time, you know, I think a lot of us looked with sort of, let's face it, envy uh, at the BPP program, right, and said, well, I mean the the bad version of this is the BPP mafia, but I'm not going to call it that, right? But just the amazing kind of sense of camaraderie, the amazing sort of collaboration between students, you know, spanning in some sense almost a generation or more than a generation. Mm -hmm. So what's the secret there? Like, how does that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, in terms of like the Williamson era, I am one of the oldest. I'm kind of like a grandma. Um, but in some ways, the community, the BPP community did predate that. So there was an earlier incarnation of BPP that was more around um, uh, corporate social responsibility and, and, and issues like that. And there was already a fairly tight kind of a, a very collegial and mutually supportive um, student culture at that time. So we in some ways inherited that. And then um, I think partly uh, because of the strong polls of uh, David Marion and, and, and Oliver Williamson, and to some extent David Teese as well, that meant that the students during during my era and some and, and beyond, there's always been a fairly um, um, a, a lot of overlapping, you know, kind of uh, interests and, and intellectual orientation. But I do think that then that we have 
from the early days, really from, you know, like the early 90s when I was there, we've, we've taken institutions seriously. And so I didn't mention, so Ha mentioned at the end, in past, me breaking my hand on a bottle, opening a bottle for uh, Oliver Williamson. It is true. I, I was opening a bottle of beer for Oliver Williamson and I broke my hand, uh, but I didn't let on. So nobody knew that, that I had broken my hand. And I went to the doctors the next day and he's like, yep, it's broken. <laughs> it's called a boxer's break. It's this bone right here. But that, so that's kind of like the, but the reason I was opening a bottle of beer for Williamson was because he had this uh, seminar. It was called IDS 270. Uh, it was his speaker series, and because of his stature and his eclectic interest, they would like you know bring in people from uh, all different uh, uh, areas. And he was, and the PhD students were very involved in it. And so I think that was also kind of it was part of the community building. Uh, we you know we really had good community building within the school, um, and then from pretty early on, we we instituted you know what a, a lot of schools do now is you know kind of the the annual meetings at the academy where everybody would get together and then for quite a few years now we have had um a conference once a year that's all bpp um alumni and we uh go and we present work to each other it's focused usually focused more on kind of junior and mid-career but us old farts still go once in a while um, and each year there, the students who are going on the job market get to present. So it's kind of like they're presenting to their network. Um, and I think that really, that obviously helps. That is part of the mafia part of it. You know, it is, it is a network in that respect. Um, so, I, so I think it's, you know, it's part formal institutions and it's part a culture that's just gone back a long time. Yeah. And we were a pretty big program. I think it still is reasonably big, but you know, in my day, we had a couple of years. We were mainly usually like three in the program in a year, but there was a couple of, of bubble years um, where I think we had one year where there were eight, seven or eight students. And uh, me and uh, Emerson Tiller actually took credit for that because they always used to have to um, um, enroll, uh, give more offers than they, they would yield. And that particular year, I think it was one of the first years that Williamson was also doing the PhD admissions. And he persuaded them that even though we only had, I think they had six slots, but he, uh, maybe four slots. And he said, you know, our yield's always terrible. So let me make eight offers. And the administration by some wacky thing actually let him make eight offers. And me and Emerson met with every one of those, uh, 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 people who had made offers. It was the year when Rosemary Ham, for instance, now Zadonis uh, came in and, and uh, we apparently persuaded all of them to come. And so <laughs> we had this bumper year. And I do think critical mass matters, you know, so it, it helped. Um, so we do have one quest other question from Nina. Nina, do you want to ask your question? Just unmute yourself. Oh, you're no, you're muted. Hi, Joanne. Thanks for uh, sharing. Um, I'm a PhD student at London Business School. Um, I just wanted to ask if you could share uh, more about how you decide that you're happy with your paper um, and when you actually uh, decide to submit it to journals, because you mentioned that you don't tend to send them off until you feel that they're really ready. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think you, you, have to, you have to throw your guts out on the table, right? You have to let people read your paper, let your strongest critics read your paper, um, present it to your peers and, you know, um, um, yeah, there's, there's nothing, there's no substitute for exposing your ideas uh, as painful as it can be. And I will say another, another, an, another thing that I've always done and that I think is super useful is I've always um, been a part of serendipitously or by generating it myself, uh, being, being part of a um, kind of virtual brown bags or, you know, uh, communities of peers. So some of them have been more formal, like the, um, the what did we call it, we, the SRF, you know, like I was one of the early people in the SRF where you have a conference with, of juniors only. And I think the juniors only is really important. You want it to be your peers where you can throw your guts out on the table. And if I didn't have that, I've also been a part of virtual brown bag groups where we would meet by phone every week and say there'd be a half a dozen of us and one of us would be um, presenting every week. Howard, you in that for a little while? That virtual brown bag that we had? Yeah, uh, uh, it was very helpful. Yeah, no, and, and I think it's great. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it forces you to just kind of, again, just expose your ideas. Uh, there's, there's nothing can beat that because you can think it's as beautiful as you like, but then somebody reads it and they just don't get it. Uh, and, and I think a lot of problems when people are sending in their first papers or the first round, it's not that they don't have a good idea or even a good study. They just haven't communicated it well enough because they're, they're down in their own little, you know, rabbit hole. I hope that's helpful. So, um, I was waiting to see if Nina wanted to say something, but uh, it's fine. Um, okay, so now to 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 move on to the so um, let's start with the easy, the the simplest one maybe. Uh, outside of work, what do you do for fun? What your ho favorite hobbies? I play soccer. Not this year. It's like driving me crazy. You can't play soccer. <laughs> I love playing soccer. I'm very bad, and I'm, I think I'm the oldest women, woman in my league, just about, but, uh, but I love it. So yes, so that's the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, thinking specifically about, you know, reading outside of, you know, the f work, uh, uh, you have a favorite genre of book, favorite author? So um, I, I, I think honestly the answer to that is no. I really, I love reading. I love literary fiction. I am a part of a book club. Um, I am part of a book, book club of, of people that are really otherwise outside of my social circle. Um, and, uh, and so again, it's this, I, I, I really, I really enjoy reading all kinds of literary fiction, but I also love talking about literary fiction. Um, so I really, I, I do really enjoy being in a book club. And, and I have to admit, I am not good at um, kind of reading, um, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm not good at keeping up always with the, 
the latest and greatest in, in news and, and business books and things like that. I think it's one of my failings. I always feel like I need to do a bunch of homework before I teach a class because I, you know, I haven't been reading widely enough since the last time I taught. <laughs> I think we all have that feeling. There's just so much. And at, at this point, not reading the news is probably good for sanity. So. <laughs> um, I, I know right now we're all kind of, pan the pandemic has basically put all travel, most travel on hold, all travel on hold. But back when you could travel, what would be your favorite city to visit? Uh, I, so I spent uh, six months of a sabbatical in Paris. And I was going to say, you, you know, yeah. I know. What you yeah, that is still like a real highlight. Uh, I have to say, I would love to go back to Paris for an extended visit. I like visiting Paris, but I really liked pretending I lived there for six months. <laughs> um, and uh, I haven't traveled, you know, as widely over the years as I might. As you know, there's tons and tons and tons of opportunity. And, you know, perhaps because I, I have a couple of kids um, and it's always work-life balance has always been really important to me. Um, it's super easy as an academic to kind of put life off until the next hurdle, you know. Um, I, I'll do that after I get a job, I'll do that after I get tenure, I'll do that after, 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 after. And, uh, uh, and I, I think you have to live your life. Um, and part of that is that I haven't traveled probably as much. And then I have family, my family's in the UK, my husband's family's in California. So, you know, adding family trips to both those places every year um, and uh, there aren't as many opportunities as, the, as there might be. Um, so, you know, big confession. I have three papers uh, on Japanese business. I have one paper on Russia. I have not been to Japan and I have not been to Russia. Um, so, you know, that's like, that's that, I, I'm not, I'm not proud of that, by the way, <laughs> but it just is a fact. Uh, and it goes back to, you know, clearly I work with co-authors who are embedded in those. I would never dream of writing on about a place, uh, uh, based on that lack of knowledge. If I didn't have ultimate trust in, uh, in my co-authors, um, uh, knowledge of the institutions because institutions matter. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I haven't traveled as much as I would like. And it's one of the things that uh, in the next, the next, my post administrative phase, now that my kids are out of the house, uh, except for COVID, um, it's, I will travel much more, including particularly to Asia. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I know we're rescheduling the, the SMS Hangzhou conference. So I think we will, <laughs> I will hold you to that. Yeah. Um, you, you, you mentioned work-life balance, uh, uh, you know, uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, and, you know, and I know we have, you know, a number of people on, you know, especially assistant professors and, you know, people with kids, etc. Uh, thoughts about work-life balance, especially for working mothers, for example? Mm. Um, so I've been really, really lucky in that respect. Um, in part, you know, one of the fun facts, I am married to a professional juggler. Um, and the professional jugglers, it turns out, have quite different schedules than, um, than profs. And so that's definitely uh, helped. Uh, I think it's really hard when you have two, um, two working parents with very similar kind of schedules. It definitely makes things more uh, tricky. 
Um, so I think that is one one thing that's just just a fact, you know. Um, I think in terms of uh, tips or advice, I think a couple of things is you know one of the beauties of our job is that we do have a lot of flexibility. And sometimes we don't, you know, and you can, you can work hard and do well and still take advantage of that flexibility. And sometimes I think people feel like they shouldn't. And I, and I strongly encourage you to do that, you know, and, 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 and the other thing is just my mantra when the kids were small was outsource everything but the kids, right? So throw money at it to, to don't outsource the kids or no more than you're comfortable with. I'm not judging, but it was really important to me to be able to uh, um, have maximum maximum kid time. Um, so, but everything else, you know, any anything else that I could outsource, I would. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Tamina asked me to uh, ask this, so it's blame her. Um, so the professional juggling thing, I like, you know, I think, you know, we all think of ourselves as professional jugglers, but apparently he's actually a professional juggler. Is he still like, is he still a professional juggler? Like, what is that like? Not during COVID. <laughs> I guess that's true. This year is pretty, uh, pretty rough on professional jugglers. Um, I will say that. Uh, yeah, no, but yes. But other than that, yes, he's, he definitely is still uh, doing that. And I should also just give him a shout out. He also, he paid my way through grad school, uh, professional juggling too. So it's like, I owe him from the very beginning. Um, so yeah, one of the things that people used to say, you know, like, how are your kids ever going to rebel when you have a mother who's a business professor and a father who's a, who's a juggler? You know, how the heck do you rebel against that? Uh, and I always say one of the things that we have in common is we both started working when we were teenagers. And so we've both been kind of pretty, you know, like independent and, and, uh, and self-sufficient since an early age. So, uh, we, you know, we may still, we may have 40 year olds living at home before, you know, <laughs> that's how they'll rebel. <laughs> oh, um, um, favorite dessert? My friend just made my favorite dessert the other night. I, they made a rhubarb pavlova. I'm not really, a, I'm not a particularly a dessert huh. person. But oh my goodness, it was to die for. <laughs> okay then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what that tastes like. Um, oh, it's beautiful. It's custard. It's very brilliant. It's very like close to a, a Brit's heart. It's got custard. It's got meringue. Yeah, which, which is what worries me, but <laughs> What's not to love? <laughs> Um, so, uh, John, you know, I think that's pretty much, uh, uh, all I have. I just want to, again, on behalf of the division, on behalf of the Stronger Together team, I, I really, really want to thank you. I'm going to hand it over to Ha, but just thank you so much for doing this. It's always a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Hi, you want to... Yeah, no, I guess this is where I, uh, applaud for everyone. And I want to thank you so much for your time. And I'm, I think a lot of this, uh, I think I'm going to come back to your advice. So I'm going to be re-watching the video. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your energy and passion with us. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for sticking around. It's not often I get to talk about myself for a couple hours. <laughs> it's like, so I really, uh, it's, it's been super fun. And thank you, Asim. And thank you, Ha. Uh, and thank you, everybody. Thank you, Samina. Thank you, everybody, for uh, a just coming and, and it's fantastic. Okay.
Okay, with that, thank you everyone and um, see you on YouTube. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Okay, okay, bye.